angels, God is our protector. David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You see, the faithful person takes refuge in the Lord. In other words, where does he go when times are difficult? Where does he go when he's afraid of things that life brings? Where does he go when he doesn't know what's going to happen next? He goes to the Lord. This is capital L-O-R-D. In this first verse, it's a reminder, he says, In you, O God, I take refuge. And then he says to the Lord, this is that word for Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of the promise, the God of the covenant to his people. He says, preserve me. And then he says, you are my Lord, capital L, little letters, O-R-D. You see, the faithful who stake their refuge in the Lord also stake their lives on the Lord. And they do it in these two ways. First of all, they say, you are my Lord. They acknowledge him as Lord. Now this is just like in the New Testament when we say that every knee shall bend, every mouth shall proclaim or tongue shall proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Isaiah says this as well about God, that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess But before we're forced to do that, because God sends his son Jesus back in judgment, those who have placed their faith in the Lord do that anyway. We turn to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Lord, and we tell him we are submitting to him as master over us. Now, this is a reminder, too. This does not mean that we're making him our Lord. We don't have to do that. He already is that. We are acknowledging him in faith that he is Lord. In other words, we are submitting in holy obedience and faith to God. That's part of seeking refuge in him. If we're seeking refuge in him, we're seeking refuge in his way, his will, his purpose, his word, not our own. We can't have it both ways. We can't say, I'm going to seek refuge in the Lord and then do our own thing and go our own way. We're calling him our master and our Lord. The second thing we do is we acknowledge him as our good Now, I have to say, the Hebrew of this particular psalm seems to be more difficult than the last few that we've done. And this particular phrase, I have no good apart from you, has been debated by commentators for many years because it's a little bit unclear. Is David saying, basically, that I have no good except that I have good because I'm resting in you? I think that's a legitimate translation here, perhaps the one that I prefer But another way to look at this is to say that the author is saying, my good does not affect you. In other words, what I do doesn't change who you are as God. You don't need my goodness. But here we are reminded, we are acknowledging God as our good. In the context of these three Psalms, 14, 15, 16, we were hit with the truth, we're not good. There's no one righteous, no, not one. 
In chapter 15, we looked at what a good man looks like who has fellowship with God, and we come to the end and we hear the promise, that person shall not be moved. But chapter 16 reminds us, our good is not found in ourselves. Our good is found in God. What good news. In other words, the person you can turn to in times of trial and tribulation is the person that can not only keep you safe as your protector, he can also keep you eternally safe from the judgment of God because of his goodness, his righteousness, applied to you by faith. The faithful stake their lives on the Lord. That doesn't mean that we just say, okay, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I know God has my back. No, this means that we stake our life, our reputation, everything on our faith. If the things of the Bible are not true, as the Apostle Paul says, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why? Because we believe this book to be true and to be our only hope for eternal life. It is our only protection against the judgment of death. And so how does that play out in our lives? Well, verse 3 says this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, Charles Spurgeon on this passage, he applies Jesus to this whole psalm because of the words of Acts 2 and Acts 13 that are quoting this particular psalm. And so he says, Jesus delights in the saints. We know this. He gave his life for them. But I think David is also writing for those who are saying in faith in Christ, you, God, are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And he says, basically, these faithful then identify with the Lord's people. Sometimes the saints aren't so lovely. I have to say, sometimes I come home and I say, oh, that person there, I can't believe they just did X. That person over there, you know, I have such trouble following what he wants to say. Or that person over there, I just disagree with that practical ministry idea over there. Or that person over there, you know, he just, he just thinks that, that he is something, and I don't think he's anything. And I think about that, and, and I think I come home, and I say, I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. But what does the saint really do? He delights in the holy ones. That is the saints of God. He delights in the ones that were sinners, that God has redeemed and are cleansing them, and all those things. That means even those people that I disagree with sometimes, don't get along with all the time, or maybe I just don't like their personality. Yet if they are in the Lord, I delight in them. In other words, I identify with the church. There are thousands of Americans now that say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't do the church thing. Well, then you don't do the biblical thing. Because God loved the church so much, he gave his son for them. He describes the church as the bride of Christ. And he tells us he's gifted us so that we can be together and build one another up all the more until the day 
approaches when Christ returns. If you're not identifying in a church, you're not identifying with God and Christ and his people. It says here, right here in this passage, if you are someone who claims Jesus as your Lord or the triune God as your Lord and Master, you will delight in the people of God. You identify with them with all of their black spots, with all of their wrinkles, knowing they're not always going to please you and do everything you want them to do. It's not your church, it's God's church. And if he loved them so much, Jesus' blood was shed for them, how can you but love them a little that you would associate with them? The faithful one identifies with God's people, but on the reverse, the faithful one also denounced the Lord's apostates. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. How meaningful, particularly in the illustration we have of the historical Old Testament people who amongst the people of God, there was always a faithful remnant upon which the faithful would identify with. Those that despite all the obstacles and all the things going on in the world would still come and worship the true God of Israel. But amongst them were all those who would follow after other gods. And he says, these practices, these ways of following idols and basically denying the truth of God by denying that God alone should be worshipped, we must denounce. The faithful one, by denouncing the Lord's apostates who follow other gods and who will have multiple problems because of that, both practically in this life and, of course, in all eternity, the faithful will not worship with them. He will not pour out the offerings of blood. He will not go through the, the ceremony and the tradition of those who would follow idols. He will not worship with them, and he will not even name their gods. Of course, we know the names of these gods sometimes would mean master or king or other things. Some of the words like Baal and Moloch and some of those names of those gods literally meant master or king or other things like that. And he says, I'm not even going to name those. In fact, in fear of God, often they would not name the name of their own God. How could they identify with the God's of others because God alone, God alone is our good, our refuge, our protector, our Lord. I remember when I was in junior high, we lived about three blocks from the school building that I attended, and my mother began to work at the school library. And so I would walk to school every day, and then all of a sudden it was, as a preteen, my mother was going to walk with me. I was horrified. I couldn't, as a young person, be seen walking with my mother to school when I was old enough to walk on my own. And as a mean, mean child, what I did is I would make her walk behind me, and I would walk in front of her. I didn't want to be identified with my own mother. Christianity is first and foremost about the Lord. But secondarily, it's all about God's people. 
If we're embarrassed to be seen with the people of God, if we're embarrassed to be associated with the church of God, then what will God think of us? If instead we're all about pleasing and satisfying those who don't follow the true God, what does that say about us? If God really is our protector, we find refuge and solace amongst God and his people, and we recognize he is our protector But we also recognize he's our provider. You see, God is all we've got. One of the things that I thought about when I was reading these psalms this week, I I thought, really, when it comes down to it, and we look at the goodness and the righteousness that is required of every person entering the gates of heaven, I think to myself, I don't have it. My neighbor doesn't have it. My family doesn't have it. The only one that has it is the Lord Jesus Christ in consultation with and following the will of his Father. God is our provider. So then in verse 5, we get the reaffirmation of faith. He's already proclaimed faith. My faith is in you, Lord. You are my Lord and Master. You are, in essence, my good. Now he says, you, Lord, are my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. One of the things that's so fascinating is when we think of all the blessings of God, what do we think of? Yes, we think of eternal life. We think of forgiveness. We think of the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the spiritual things we look at. And then we talk to others and we think about all the material things that we have, health and wealth and happiness and all those things. But what is the greatest gift that God has given us? Himself. He provides himself to the faithful. The psalmist does not write, by the way, my house and my property and the promised land are my chosen portion. By the way, my nice car and my house and my 401k are my nice portion. My wife and my children are not my chosen portion. He says, the Lord is my portion. He provides himself to the faithful so that the faithful say, you, Lord, are our portion and our cup. Now, of course, you know what the cup is in the Bible. The cup is either a good cup or a bad cup. The cup is what you drink as something that God has given you in your lot in life. And we can either accept that lot and we can be content in it, whatever it is, whether it's a a life of health and wealth or whether it's a life of despair and distress, whatever it is, God has given us a cup to drink. And by faith, we say, you, Lord, are our cup. In other words, no matter what life has to bring, no matter what the future holds, no matter what's going to happen in our country and society and culture, The Lord is with us. He is ours by faith. And he says, you hold my lot. In other words, whatever I experience in life, I recognize in your sovereignty is your grace and your purpose for me. God is our provider, gives himself to us, his purposes, his plans, and in essence, His presence. And here are the blessings that David describes. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, what are lines? 
These are measures. Uh, measuring the, the blessings of God, particularly thinking of measuring and surveying and, and things like that, looking at the properties, you know, the, the lines that receives, just the physical blessings of life. Those things are things that God has given him. And his heritage. He says, I have a beautiful inheritance. The idea here is that his, this heritage is pleasing. And of course, his heritage is not just okay, I can tell you about my parents and what they're like and the blessings they give. It's not just, you know, here, here's the, the wealth of my family and how it's been passed down from generation to generation. No, this is God's heritage, a heritage of faithfulness. Those who have staked their lives upon him have a heritage because they shall live forever. And God is holding their lives in his hands. So much so that Jesus will say, all that God has given me, not one of them shall perish. None of them will be plucked from my hand. What a beautiful inheritance. Then he says, verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He provides counsel to us. And of course, that's the word of God. You know, it's not just that he reveals to us the means of salvation in scriptures. He also reveals to us how we're to live a godly life, how we're to deal with all the things that come our way. Aside from telling us how to unplug and plug in a computer when it doesn't work, he does tell us how to use that computer for good and not for evil. He gives us counsel. And then he also reminds us, he doesn't just give us counsel, but in the nights also my heart instructs me. Now, it's always kind of funny. I like this term for heart. It's the word kidneys or inner being. It means here that basically in our whole being, in our inner selves, he gives us disciplined nights. What does he mean by that? It means those nights when we're up at night thinking about the difficult experiences we're having, we're thinking about the consequences of our sin, or we're thinking about the difficulties and the barriers to, to following him the next day, those nights where we're up at night and the word comes to us and we're reminded of God's presence and power in our lives by his word. Those are the nights that he gives us, training us, rebuking us, correcting us in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think it could also mean those night seasons, you know, those dark times of your existence when you wonder perhaps where God is or what he's doing. Those things, the psalmist also says, I'm going to bless God for those times. Not that I want those times. No, I don't want them. But when God brings you through them, you rejoice on the other side. Not necessarily because you know why it all happened or that you wanted to experience such a thing again, but because you recognize God brought you through and for whatever reason that purpose was for your good. And so he says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken because we recognize God is our provider. We recognize he provides security. He always wants God to be right there with him through all these experiences through thick and thin. The faithful constantly contemplate him. That's what it means when it says the Lord is always before you. The first thing that you think about when you experience a difficult thing is, Lord, how are you going to help me handle this? 
The first thing you think about when a joyful experience comes is, Lord, I'm so glad you brought that to me. Sometimes I know it's difficult. We live our lives and sometimes we live as practical atheists who never talk to God. But hopefully by faith he's encouraging us and training us to speak to him at every circumstance. I was reminded this week with a stiff back how in my early years of my marriage I would have days where my back would go out and for several days I'd be just down on my back unable to do much of anything. I was reminded of days in my high school time when I was uh, growing too fast and the doctors told me I had this disease where my spine was stretched out and I couldn't play football or sports that I loved. I wasn't allowed to jump for six months. And I thought, what a, what a terrible experience. But then walking down yesterday, walking down Carolina Forest Boulevard, I thought to myself, it's been 15 to 20 years now since I had those back problems where I couldn't do anything for a day or two. My back hurts a little bit now. Yeah, I'm stiff. I'm probably going to be sore after standing here for a couple hours, whatever it is. But I'm so thankful to God. Thank you, Lord that I haven't had that for all these years. You see, are you constantly contemplating him in your blessings and in your difficulties? You see, what do the faithful do? They continuously pray to him. He's at your right hand. In other words, when you're going through a difficult time, he's your right-hand man. Only he's more than man, he's God. And you can come to him in times of difficulty. Is he going to give you all the answers right here and now? especially the answers you really want? Not necessarily, but he's God, and he cares about you, and he loves you if you have staked your life upon him and, and recognized what he has done for you. He's at your right hand, and then it says, I shall not be shaken. The words here is the faith will not be made to stumble. In other words, our security is such that God will not allow us to be moved from the kingdom of heaven. Are we going to stumble sometimes and fall into temptation and sin? Yes. Are we going to have difficulties sometimes where we have doubts and fears? Yes. But in the end, if we truly have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. If we have really meant these things by faith, turned from our sin, placed our faith on him, we will never be made to move from the kingdom of God. He will forever keep us secure because he is not only our provider, but he is our protector and our preserver. Verse 9 says this, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. You see, we have security in life. In this life. Not just in the life to come. We have security in this life. If these promises are true, then they will be true now. It doesn't mean that everything is going to fall into place and have everything I want to happen happen. But it does mean we have security that God will be with us, will not forsake us. Why do we know this? Because of verse 10. Not only do we have security in life, we have security in death. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now we know David wrote these words. And as Peter said to the people in his day, we know that David's been dead for a thousand years. His tomb is right over there. When we see these words and hear these words, we know that, yes, his body decayed in the grave. So how could David write these words? 
Because as the scriptures tell us, both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts tell us, this is applied to Jesus Christ, and perhaps even the entire psalm is specifically, in a special way, applied to Jesus. You see, what happened when Jesus died was it pointed to the fact that the resurrection promise was fulfilled, the promise that we see in part here in this chapter. When David writes, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, he writes by faith, did God abandon David in Sheol? No. In fact, his soul is right now with the Father, with Jesus in heaven, and he will be with him for all eternity, and at some point in the future, he will be reunited with his body. Then he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. God will not let his devout or faithful one, literally it says, see the grave. Now this reminds us, who is this devout and faithful one? It's not David. David was a sinner who needed God's grace, who needed God's goodness. It was not some other prophet or some other saint of the day. It was only the holy one, the devout or faithful one, the one that fulfilled chapter 15 and all the characteristics of being a good man, the one who is not like chapter 14. He is righteous. He's not a liar. He is good. It's Jesus. And what happened when Jesus died? His body really did die. He really did get buried. He really did experience the pain and suffering of hell for us because he said to God, why have you forsaken me? And yet by God's power and God's wonderful purpose, that body did not decay in the grave, but in all of the power and glory of God, it raised up from the dead. And Jesus has conquered death, our hope in God. When we say, Lord, you are our Lord, God, you are our provider and our protector, we will seek refuge in you. We're seeking refuge in the God who raised his son from the dead. He is the one who did not experience the corruption and the decay. We have security because of what happened in Jesus. When I was a young person, I grew up in one of those churches where the church was here, there was a parking lot, and then the church building, and then there was a graveyard. And so there were times when I was playing out in the yard, and I ended up in the graveyard playing. And I remember when I first got my camera... I took a bunch of pictures of everything. I took a picture of my collections, a picture of my dog, a picture of my stuffed animals, a picture of everything. I took a picture of my favorite gravestones. And I remember for years I had from that graveyard a red leaf that had fallen, and that red leaf was in the shape of a heart. And I thought, boy, that's a neat thing. And so for many years I had that thing. And I thought, today if you were to say your little child's going to be playing in the graveyard over there, you're going to think, well, that guy's nuts. In fact, we have such a macabre view of death because of all the death culture in our society and all the fascination with violence and death and all those other things. But now we look at death and we seek to terrify people with death. Death is scary enough on its own, isn't it? But what does this passage remind us? For those that die in the Lord, they will not be abandoned. Instead, 
God will make known to us the path of life. For David, God made known to David the path of life, that there would be someone to sit on his throne forever, and it would come from his line, and the promises were so clear to David that he staked his life, his reputation, his very being on those promises so that he, as a man after God's own heart, would see the kingdom of God. For us, we know now, revealed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the witnesses of Christ, that Jesus is the path. So the scriptures say, Jesus told us, I am the way and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. He is the one who reminds us by the scriptures that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In fact, he is the way of life, the same one that was not abandoned by God, did not see corruption. We have security only in this life on him. And then what does that bring? Joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. Not just now, Not just because we're singing praises to him. Not just in moments in which we see blessings from God. But forevermore. Forever. Security in both life and death. We have no reason by our own efforts or goodness to expect anything but evil in life and terror in death. We see it in the laws being passed in our legislatures. We see it in the difficulty people are facing trying to choose for themselves some path that might bring them happiness of some sort. We see the seeking for joy in all of the dark places of this world. We see the scriptures that tell us man loved darkness rather than light. We cannot expect any way to find our way through life and find this pathway on our own except for one thing. God is good and our Savior is wonderful. By the glory of God, Jesus is the pathway that gives us life forevermore. I hope you think about this week as you cast your vote. I, think you, I hope you think about this this week as you watch the news. I hope you think about this this week as you try to ignore the elections, as that's what you're trying to do. I hope you do that as you think of all the policies, all the things that are going on around us, to know that none of them, not one of them, is going to give us life except Jesus Christ himself. Let's bow in prayer. Father, there are those who would tell us if we do the right things, if we spend our money the right way, if we cast our vote to the right party, if we do the right thing this way or that way, we can save the world. But Father, what baloney. Lord, there is only one thing we can do that can save ourselves. And it's not something we do on our own. It's only something you can do in us, a work of your own doing that we would give all the glory to you. Help us, Lord, by faith to turn from our sins and to find refuge in you. Help us, Lord, to forsake the other things of this world and to say that you are our Lord. Help us, Lord, to have the audacity to fight off all those who would say that the church is the most wicked and evil place on earth, that we might identify with your people, the people of God, because we trust 
in you. Help us, Lord, to stand when all else shall fall apart. Help us, Father. Help us to see you who has loved your people with an undying love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.